0: Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, again, as always, we just want to say thank you uh, because, Father, we know it's because of your goodness and grace that we're able to gather here today. We thank you, Father, for our freedom. We thank you, Father, for our health. We thank you, Father, for the incredible gift of salvation. We thank you, Father, for your presence. We thank you, Father, for giving us your word that we may know you, that we may understand and know the good news, that, Father, we may uh, be able to grasp the meaning of our life and the meaning of life in general. We thank you, Father, for all these gifts and more that you have given to us. Father, we ask this morning as we continue our worship, as we have, again, prayed together, we have sung together, we have given of our tithes and offerings, we ask for your blessing on these things, and ask, Lord, as we focus on you and who you are, that you would speak to us through your word. We pray, Lord, that we would be open to your word as we, and it is read, as I seek to do the best that I can to explain what is here I pray, Lord, you would give me clarity of thought and speech that you give to all of us, Father, uh, the ability to grasp together what your word is saying and that, Father, it would have its proper effect on us as we are continually molded by your spirit. We just thank you, Father, for this opportunity we have to, to gather as Christians and to gather around your word, knowing, Lord, with all of that, you are here in the midst of us. And what a great blessing that is. And so we thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Lamentations chapter 2, beginning in 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground and dishonored the kingdoms and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eye, uh, in, in, in our eye, sin, the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out His fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel, He has swallowed up all its palaces, He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of Israel, as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay it in ruins, the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. That would not be the normal way of how we would read scripture to begin our week. It's a very serious laying out of what the Lord has done. I know that it's maybe human nature to do this, but sometimes as Christians, when we talk about what we would call maybe the negative aspects of God, we talk about his wrath or his judgment on sin, sometimes we are afraid to dwell on it too long because we don't want someone to get the wrong picture. We we want to very quickly get to the part where God redeems, very quickly get to the part where God is merciful very quickly get to the part where where God will save us. And I understand that. But you can tell that Jeremiah is just not worried about people getting the wrong picture of God. He wants to make sure they have a correct picture, which begins with what's going on here. As I mentioned before, the author goes a long way to make sure that this detailed description is deeply cemented in the hearts and minds not only of those who are experiencing this but of those who are reading this to remind them of the reality of who god is and that if we are not delivered from god this is what awaits us 30 or 40 times in these verses that i read this morning you either have the phrase the lord has or it's followed by a verb that's describing what god has done that he is responsible or there is a description description of what god has done 30 or 40 times in these 10 verses. he is, He's making sure that we have a good understanding of this. And he's not afraid of the impression it might leave in the minds and hearts of those who are reading this. In fact, I, I think he's doing this willfully. He has chosen to do this. And again, God has preserved this book for you and I. And so it is profitable for us to read this. In this, you're not going to find ten ways to be happy. You're not going to find in here seven steps to your best life now. And I'm not saying those things are necessarily bad. I'm just saying that we need to make sure that we have a full, comprehensive understanding of God and of life. And, and there needs to be when I say a balance, I, I never mean by that, that it's 50-50. I don't know what the ratio is supposed to be. What I do know is too often we really diminish uh, and minimize this aspect of God. We want to get away from it as quickly as possible. And I think that is to our detriment. One of the values of this book is the proof that sin eventually and inevitably results in devastation. Here, that's clearly what's going on in so many ways. I mean, he gets to the point when you read through there, remember it says that the prophets basically have nothing to say from God. And if we think about how scary that should be, it, maybe this is the most obvious lesson of the book, but the terrible consequences of the siege of Jerusalem, which Jeremiah, again, is chronicling here for us, all the horrors uh, were the fruit of unfaithfulness to God. Again, that is the cause of this. Their unfaithfulness to God Our unfaithfulness to God in any way, shape, or form is not a minor thing. We, I think too often, we don't maybe always intend to, but we too often view God in Christianity through the lens of our culture. And again, I'm not against being positive. I really do think, in general, I'm a very optimistic guy. You know, you tell me you have cancer, and I'm thinking that is so good they found it. I'm looking for the good in that. I'm not denying the horrible news, but I'm thinking, man, it could be worse if they didn't know. So I'm, this is good. And so I'm not minimizing the bad part of it, but I'm looking for the good. I, I do that naturally. Maybe that's part of my personality. I have no idea. I know I don't l- always look like a happy-go-lucky guy, but you know, the bottom line is, is that's, kind of, that's my approach to things. And I don't think it's wrong. It's clearly not sinful. But there's no denying this aspect of God, and I never want to minimize this, and you don't want to minimize this. In fact, we can say it this way, people cannot escape the death that sin brings, even God's people. Again, the scripture says, for the wages of sin is death. It is a universal truth. Sin always results in death in some form, whether the individual is dying physically or, or we could pronounce it this way, the death of marriage, the death of the family, the death of your relationships, you know, the death of your good health, whatever it happens to be. There, there are individuals, there are families that are facing the consequences of unfaithfulness to God all over the place. And we are, again, often too quick to dismiss that idea when we are going through difficult times. There may be often just a refusal. We just don't even go there and asking ourselves, could could this be the result of my unfaithfulness? I'm not saying that we need to announce that, and I'm not saying that's always the case. Because we do know that when destruction comes, it's always the result of just sin. It's always the result of sin. The curse of sin, the sin in your life, the sin in the lives of others, the the consequences of sinful choices. I mean, that's always involved in that. But this idea that we're taking personal responsibility. And, again, what we need to remember is there are times, in fact, it seems to be often the case, that when these things happen, they happen years after the sin was committed. Now, if you think about that, I, I've thought about that. That maybe that's an act of God's mercy. That you ha- you, you're going to face some bad consequences for the sin that you have or some sin you've been involved in. And they say, whatever you're involved in, you were involved in it for a while. And, and now you've, you've repented of it and you've stopped it. But those consequences are still coming, but they don't come for 10 more years. And perhaps that's God's mercy because He's giving you an opportunity to grow as a believer so that you are better able to handle the consequences and learn the things that God wants you to learn from them. It's not God that's just somehow now going to get back at you, it's never that. And so you are now better. Because some people say, oh, I can't believe this is happening now. And it's almost like we're thinking of all the things I've done for God since then. And I've done this and I've done that. And now he lets this happen. And we get upset at God. All the while we know we, we may deserve that. Sometimes we begin to think maybe we don't. Because, again, we've done so, so much good that somehow God owes us. God owes us nothing. But God is merciful and kind in allowing you to be in a position where you are in a better position, mature-wise, spiritually, to handle what's happening. I mean, in in a very simple way, think about it. When a child of nine loses a parent, they're not exactly ready for that. It does have devastating effects. But when you are 60 and you lose a parent, it's still devastating and sad and all the things that go along with that, but you are clearly better able, you're suited to handle that. That maturity makes a difference. Now, it's not only God's mercy that that person lived long so you can enjoy that relationship and all that it brings, but you're also now in a better position because of your knowledge and because of, uh, of the maturity that you have, both emotionally and spiritually, to be able to deal with that difficulty. And so the same thing may be with, with us when we face the consequences of Maybe some grievous things. Now, I don't want you to walk out of here afraid. Oh, no. I wonder if God's going really to get me for something that I did when I was in my teens. Okay, again, wrong, wrong way to look at it. God's not coming to get you. All right? And as we grow and mature, we really should have less fear of that. We Don't be afraid of anything that God's going to do. Because God only does what is right and what is just. And that might make us a little nervous, but we're his children. It's, it's going to be beneficial For you, for others, and of course, bring him glory. So it's important then that we recognize and grasp these things and mature as believers. And so again, sin always results in death in some form. We want to remember that. The Hebrew people thought that they could get away with their sins. And even though God was slow to judge them, they finally experienced the devastating consequences of their sin. Some have said this may be true. God is angry with the church of our day, the church in America. He's angry with professing Christians of today because we've departed from God. So we can count on his judgment if we don't repent. Maybe the church today spends too much time on the good news of salvation by grace. What I mean by that is in comparison to talking about the reason why we need to be saved by God's grace. There's not enough time spent on the bad news that judgment is coming because of sin. And so again, Lamentations, one of its many purposes is to help us to remember why we need salvation. And again, it's a message that we need in our day. I have talked to you many times, we've brought up the issue many times, how people view God's salvation, redemption, and sin. Many, many, many people truly do not think they need to be saved from anything it's they don't view themselves as being arrogant they don't think they're being arrogant they truly are ignorant they i i mean i again people will willingly admit that we all have made a few mistakes i've not sinned and i certainly haven't done anything that deserves death or god's wrath and when we meet people like that remember Even if you have the urge, that's not the point to begin to scream and yell at them to somehow make them feel guilty. It's not your job to make them feel guilty. If you make them feel guilty, they're feeling guilty because you yelled at them. They they need to experience the conviction of the Spirit of God. That's why we just continue to share the Scripture with them and talk about what God has done for us. We don't have to make it more dramatic than it is. What does God's judgment on the church look like? There's a few things, and I think we've, we're already seeing some of this. Number one, lack of influence. If you look at the supposed numbers of individuals that go to church, the new way that they define it is twice a month. It used to be three or four times a month, but now they've redefined what it means to go to church on a regular basis. But for the number of believers that supposedly are in this country, where is the influence? I don't see it. We see small circles of it. We see it in the lives of some individuals. But on a national level, does the Church of Jesus Christ have an impact on our nation? No, it doesn't. It's not because of the weakness of the gospel, it's the weakness of the people. Maybe we become more insensitive to each other or to sin. There's a spiritual blindness that we also experience. One of the striking features of this lament that Jeremiah, that we've read, that Jeremiah penned, is its, again, emphasis on God's initiative in bringing destruction on Jerusalem and its people. We've said this several times. We're saying it again because here Jeremiah is emphasizing that. Jeremiah saw him, God, as the one ultimately responsible for all that had happened because God was angry over their sins. A lot of different words describing God's hostility against his people that appear in this chapter. This lament describes in greater detail than it did in chapter 1 the nature of the calamity that had befallen Judah. In chapter 1, the city is the main focus of the sorrows, of the prophet's sorrow. Chapter 2, the focus is more on the temple, what's going on with the temple. Another has noticed there's a change in tone. That in chapter 1, it seems like there was, it was more about shame and despair, and now it's anger in chapter 2. God's anger. Irving Jensen said this, and I've already said part of this, but he said this. There are about 40 descriptions of divine judgment which fell upon every aspect of the Jewish, of, of the Jewish person's life. This, these descriptions of divine judgment fell on their home life, their religion, society, physical, mental, and spiritual. Some of the blackest phrases of the book appear here in chapter 2. And so again, when you read through that, you begin to see the breadth of this that affects every aspect of life. The God of Israel had devoured the cities without sparing them. He broke the strength of Israel, and he had not restrained her enemy. So here's what I want you to remember, and this is, I think, paramount that we get this today. When Judgment starts when discipline begins. At least we can say a majority of the time. Nothing will stop it until it's complete. The calls to repent throughout the Bible normally occur when? Before judgment begins. When judgment begins, there's a call to repent But you don't see God's judgment stopping. It continues until it's completed. Don't think that when it starts in your life, you can plead with God and repent and stop it in its tracks. It's like a man who has avoided dealing properly with his marriage. And now we've gotten to the point where his wife wants no more of it. And so then she then decides that she's now going to follow through, and she's going to divorce him. And then he's now had a change of heart, and he wants it to be different. Often, it's too late. He may change. Good. She's still divorcing him. I'm not talking about whether it's right or wrong or any of that. That's just what we see. It doesn't stop then. There has been times when I was growing up, I would lie to my parents. And then when I got caught, my father was going to discipline me. And I would ask for forgiveness and tell him I was sorry. And he believed me, and I still got it. Didn't change it. You would think I would have learned. I did. Took about 10 years, unfortunately for me. But that's how it goes. Sometimes there may be a little bit of mercy. Instead of getting the full wrath or discipline, we get some. But there's not this idea in the Bible that the moment discipline or judgment starts, you can repent and God puts the brakes on immediately. That's not how it works. And so we need to remember that. Because we're dealing with the all-knowing God. He knows your heart. We, we often see this in others because we don't want to see it in ourselves, but we clearly understand that for many, many people, maybe it's for most, that when we get caught doing something, then we're willing to begin to make changes. So as long as we don't get caught, we, we're going to keep on. And then once it happens, then, and that's too late. What's the devastation in your wake? Whatever it is that you are getting involved in. I want you to, to listen as I read from the book of Hebrews chapter 10 because what I want you to understand because I want you to, to think about your life as a Christian. I want you to understand that when it comes to whatever's going on in your life, you need to repent now. I, I want you to be spared the discipline of God because once it begins, I will still pray for you. The church will still pray for you. That does not mean that anything's going to stop. We don't say that to scare anybody. That's not what we're trying to do. But we do want to look at reality. We want to understand exactly how God works. And if you are going through the discipline of God, we will be there for you to do what we can to help you. And we will pray for you. But I hope you're not thinking that somehow if you get more people to pray, it's all going to come to a screeching halt. We don't determine that. God does. And God is going to vindicate his glory, period. In the same way that, you know, I've heard it from my father, you may have heard it from your father or your mother, that because you're my son, I'm going to punish you for what you did. Those other kids, or those other boys, they're not my kids. You are my son. You are going to pay the penalty for what you did. And that's what it, it comes, we are, we are, if you're a believer, you are a child of God. Wonderful, fantastic blessings come with that, as well as responsibility, as well as accountability to God. Not that we're not accountable when we're non-believers, because all men's actions will be called into account. But in one sense, more so as believers, because he's going to call us into account now, because his glory is at stake. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you suppose will be brought, uh, will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. Now, we're not going to get to all the nuances of what's going on. We're just going to look at the words of what he's saying. Just think about this thing. If I sin willfully, which is what we do as believers, just so you know. That we, when we sin, we sin willfully. None of us are forced to do anything. We we may feel overwhelmed, but you're not. We, We make our choices. He begins by giving us just this one fact. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, again, we're not saying Christ didn't die for your sin. That's not the direction that we're going with this, and that's not what it says. But he wants us to understand, because the word but is there, all you have left is a certain fearful expectation of judgment. And it adds fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. That if you have rejected the law of Moses or rejected the law of God without mercy, all right, if you've done that on the, on, the, on the word of two or three witnesses, you'll be judged by God. So how much worse do you think it'd be for you? Because you know better. You, you and I belong to God. That's why, again, the scripture says, for those who are teachers, that they will receive a stricter judgment. So again, just to remind you, a stricter judgment never means that the ones who teach the Word of God are held to a higher standard. That's not what it's saying. It's not a different standard. We're all held to the same standard. What it means is there's less mercy. Now, that's, that's a bad thing. I want you to know that. That's not something to look forward to. But the excuses aren't going to be accepted at all. Just, there's none of that. Because clearly, to whom much is given, much is required. You know more and more is expected. This is how we raise our kids, right? Why do we often hold the oldest more responsible when they as a group are doing something together? Because the oldest knows better than the others. Because they're older. Because they've seen. Because they've heard. That, that, that's not just, that's not picking on the oldest. More is expected. And that's right and proper. And that's what he's saying here. And then he tells us, really, what's going on. Because I know I would never admit that I'm doing this. Trampling the Son of God, underfoot, I don't, I'm not trampling on the gospel. Well, that's, that's what God says I'm doing. Counter the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing. Sometimes, you know, when we partake of communion together, part of the process that we talk about is to, in a sense, kind of do a review of your life. If you are holding on to sin, if you're holding on to a sinful attitude, or maybe it's a, a pattern of behavior. That is, that's wrong. It doesn't have to be some great immorality, because again, we keep thinking in those terms. Well, I'm not committing adultery. I'm not stealing. Let's just, let's just pare it back a little bit. Right? Maybe there are certain things you know you should do and you are discontinuing, you're not doing them. Not that you're struggling, because you're not even trying. You're not doing them. Mm, maybe, maybe you're spending too much money. I mean, I don't ever have a right to tell you how to spend your money. But if you're spending too much money, maybe you're wasting it. You're putting your family in debt. And you continue to do that. Or maybe your problem is, is you're not committing adultery, but you're leering at other women. And this has been going on for years. You don't, that's not a minor thing. And according to this, you are viewing the blood of Christ as a common thing. And so we come along, and we take communion like it's no big deal. Now, that's not how God wants us to view our life. In fact, we are insulting him. Verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And so it ends with these words. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He wants us to take that to heart. Walter Kaiser was an Old Testament scholar. And he says this. Even though God was exceedingly angry with Judah, his anger was not like a hidden force, incalculable and arbitrary, hitting where and when it wished without any rhyme or reason. Instead, his anger was measured out and controlled by both his love and justice. It was at once an expression of outrage against the sin, evil, and wickedness perpetrated as well as a personal note of continued caring had he not cared or loved so intently he would not have troubled himself to call his wandering sinners back to his embrace i know i've shared this with you before this will be super brief just very simple when i was in college which i went for a little while the only reason i went was to play football i know that's an incorrect reason but that's why i went And so when I went, I had my, you know, at the end of my season, then my knee was obliterated, and I had to have reconstructive surgery. What I had done then, at that time, no one ever came back from that kind of injury, and I wasn't going to be the first. And so, but I was convinced. I knew immediately, when I was laying in the hospital, no one had to tell me. There was no doubt in my mind. I was not the most spiritual individual in the world. There were many things wrong in my life. I was a Christian, and my very first thought and continuing thought is... God did this. I wasn't angry, severely disappointed. Disappointed in myself, disappointed that I wasn't going to play again, because I did love it way too much. But my thought, there was no one, no one tried to, nobody was going to be able to convince me, God didn't do that. He did that to me. He needed to get my attention. He needed to correct me. He needed to discipline me. And so that was it. Knee is gone. Take away the things he loves the most. Gone. I wish I could tell you that my life changed drastically. It didn't begin to change. It wasn't as drastic as it should have been, but my entire path changed in the way that I thought about life, in the way that I approached life, in the way that I thought about my Christianity. That was the discipline of God. I am so glad it was only my knee. I'm glad he didn't give me some debilitating disease. There's a lot of things God could have done. That's what he chose to do. I am not bitter. I am grateful. I'm thankful. And I trust the same thing will happen to you at whatever point, if that's necessary, by God. Verse 5 of this passage that I read this morning to me is a little fearful in how it describes God and his attitude toward his people, because what does it say? The Lord has become like an enemy. You know, in sports, when we play rivals, you know, you always want to beat your opponent. But there are certain teams, and you see this in high school and college especially, it's not enough to win. You want to beat them down. You want to humiliate them. If you can beat them 63 to nothing in football, that's way better than 35 to nothing. Back when Florida was decent, had a decent football team, and they were normally beating Georgia We just had this loathing for Florida Gators And if if Georgia was in a position to win If the coach was to pull the first string when we only had 28 points people would be upset No, 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 they deserve more You need to score more we need to humiliate them. That's what you do to an enemy You don't show mercy the Lord has become like an enemy. Not about you? I do not want to be in that position. And I do think about that. What is it about me that would cause God not to be like an enemy? Nothing. Except of God's grace and God's goodness to me. 1 Peter 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. A lot of times we're thankful that God gives grace to the humble. We ignore the first part. God opposes the proud. I don't want you. That's a military term. I, I don't want God to stand firmly against me. James 4, 6. Therefore it says, just in case you didn't get it from Peter, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So I'm going to leave you with a little bit of advice in some of this. Obviously we need to examine our lives necessary, you need to repent of things and seek the Lord's help. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 2, many people recognize this is describing the latter days, but what I want you to do when we read through this is think about this in terms of us. Am I in this group? Not, Not others. We're looking in a mirror. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. I'm not saying that you and I are all of these things. But sometimes it can be uncomfortable reading this list because some of these things ring true. But then there's the last three words. Avoid such people. Recognize where people are. Avoid them. And the main reason for that is so that you do not become like them. This doesn't mean you never speak to them again. That's not what this is saying. The, the, the phrasing here to avoid them is, you are, and I are not to have fellowship with them. In other words, we're not to become intimate with them. My good, I, you and I cannot be good buddies with an individual who's abusive. Now, that's an easy one to pick because, well, I would never become really good friends with a guy who's abusive to his family. And I, I would have to bring that up. So we, we could never have an intimate relationship with that individual. Maybe they're just disobedient to their parents, you know, like if they're younger. Maybe we think of that term. Yeah, don't associate with that individual. That's hard. Sometimes we think those people are cool. Maybe the individual is just on a regular basis ungrateful. Or they're heartless. Or you find out someone just can't be appeased. They have a problem with someone else and they just can't be appeased. You need to take a warning. You can't have an intimate relationship with that individual. You, you are now the end of you now You should be the teacher. You're the one that wants to advise them. You're the one that now needs to help them. But, but you can't be on an equal footing, so to speak, because that person is going to most likely influence you. And so he just tells us simply, just avoid these people. And so go back now to Lamentations 2. And we see all these things that God is doing. We see the reality and the certainty of Judgment. And that God is judging those that he cares about. That when judgment begins, even if repentance takes place, that's no guarantee that this judgment is going to stop in its tracks. We want to be a people who are wise enough to heed the warnings of Scripture before judgment begins. And so we go back to Hebrews 10. And I want to encourage you to examine your life and repent and seek righteousness seek the help of God that pleases God he's not trying to force you into a mold to where your life is filled with unhappiness and dread now I think if you find find individuals here that you think are and that you've evaluated that they are seeking with all their heart to follow God and most of the time you, you'll find them to be individuals who are joyful they don't feel like they're in a cage They they handle life really pretty well. They're content. They love life. They embrace it. We we, we need to live that way. So when others say, what is your secret? I'm not weighed down by the things that many people are weighed down by. It's not because I was born with that kind of personality. Christ has lifted my burden. I am free from the power of sin. God has forgiven me. And, and so as I, I'm free from anger and lust, and yeah, I have my moments and there's struggles, but I'm free from those things. And because I'm free from those things, I'm free to love and to experience the love of my family and my friends and to experience the beauty of the world because I'm in tune with God. And that's what we want others to see and to, to feel from us. And the gospel really is good news, but it always begins with the bad news, the news of reality. All men are under condemnation and the Christ. Pray that God would open their eyes and change their hearts to recognize that. So when we share the gospel, they'd be willing and eager to believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we are so grateful that there was a point in our lives that we recognized that we really were under the judgment of God. And that we were fully deserving of that judgment in whatever form that it would take. We thank you, Lord, for convicting us of sin. We thank you, Father, for the burden of guilt that we experience that points us to our need for Christ. And Father, we are so grateful that Christ is there offering us salvation to those who believe. We didn't have to go groping in darkness and go on a long journey and and go through all kinds of wilderness wanderings before we could discover the hidden treasure of the gospel but that it is plainly given to us by so many. And we thank you. I pray, Lord, that for all those here today who are hearing, who may not know Christ, I pray that you would help them to recognize that they don't know him and that this judgment we speak of is coming to them and that the only way of escape is is the way that we have found, which is through Christ because of what he's done for us. God, we thank you so much. Thank you. We do thank you and we do ask these things in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen.